Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. I'm just Jim, and I am happy to be bringing a sermon to you this morning from A Song of Ascents. This is Psalm 126. If this rings a bell for you, that's because I preached on Psalm 126 about a month ago. You might not know, so this is part two, that cognitive scientists will say the ideal gap between a part one and a part two of a sermon series is about seven weeks and so we're nailing it by coming back at the perfect time to this and the reason for the gap is that Stephen Wood at Liberty River Wards and I have been tag teaming on preaching sometimes at both places so I was at River Wards this morning preaching the same sermon as I did with part one Stephen Wood is going to be back this coming week having preached a sermon at Liberty River Wards and then back here it'll be fun so if you're Abel, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning, and grant us your Holy Spirit. Illumine the word of God to us, Father, in all of its authority, and all of its perfection, and all that it has to say for us, both in itself and through Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Lord, would you now meet us with grace and mercy. Bring us, Jesus, into your presence that we would know your forgiveness and your healing. All to the glory, Father, of you and through your Son, we pray. Jesus, amen. Please be seated. This is how bad Pennsylvania is. I told you that I was at Liberty River Wards in the Fishtown, Kensington area. I mentioned Bruce Springsteen, singer-songwriter from New Jersey, and I started the sermon by talking about Bruce's most important song, and then I opened it, I crowdsourced it, and said, hey, what are, wh- what would you consider to be one of the top most important songs of Bruce? And I got crickets. Nobody mentioned one Bruce Springsteen song, so I'm glad to be back with my people in the state of my choosing. And so, I'm going to talk here for just a second about what might be Bruce's most important song, which is... Very good. So much better. You're better. Born to run. Although I appreciate it, I, I heard some Thunder Road at least and, and, and some, some other things. And for the record, Thunder Road might be my favorite Bruce Springsteen song. Born to Run might be his most important. 1975, the title track of the album. 
soon after that, and a couple times since, Bruce has also said that Born to Run might be his favorite song. It's the most played in concert of any of the songs throughout, throughout the decades to the present day. And he says, it contains my most important line. All of the rest of my music is about this one thing, this one idea. I'll give you the long version of the quote. Walk with me out on the wire. Girl, I'm just a scared and lonely rider, but I gotta find out how it feels. I wanna know if love is wild. I wanna know if love is real. And Bruce has said, that line, I wanna know if love is real. My entire musical career is about that idea. Is love real? And take it from me, Bruce is wrong. That's not his most important line. It, it is an important line, but you know, trust the artist more than the art. When an artist interprets one's own art, it's always a bad interpretation, including my hero, Bruce Springsteen. But Born to Run actually does include what I consider the most important line in Bruce Springsteen's catalog. <coughs> I'll give you the long version. Someday, girl, I don't know when, we're going to get to that place where we really want to go and we'll walk in this sun. And that may or may not culminate in, because tramps like us, baby, we were something. That's the line. And I get the, I want to know if love is real, that's romantic, take a chance, this is our moment, let's seize it. But as you look at Bruce's songs over the years, and this comes out, there's a song in the 80s that he wrote that's important called This Hard Land. Let's all ride together to the place we're going, but if you can't make it, stay hard, stay hungry, stay alive if you can, and meet me in a dream of this hard land. Or maybe his most important song of this century has the same idea in almost the same words. Meet me in the land of hope and dreams, in the land, in the place where we really want to go. And that's an important question, I think, for us as people, as we run, as we live, as we go, actually, where are we going? Are we going anywhere at all? And in this cultural moment right now, it's in the cultural drinking water where it might seem like a less important question because, and I'm sure many of you have heard this phrase, it's not the destination, it's the journey. It's about the journey, just the adventure of developing and moving through life. It's not about where you're going. It's not about the destination. I would submit to you that that is actually learned behavior for human beings in this late modern period. It's not natural to us. Case in point, picture yourself and some of you are in this stage or have been in this stage. If not, you can imagine it. Say you're a parent of little kids and you're driving around. You've been driving around for a long time. And you realize, and then make the mistake of saying out loud, in the hearing of your kids, oh no, we're lost. But you're still driving. Is that when the kids will come back and say to you, mommy, daddy? It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Let's just enjoy the journey right now. 
No. They're going to freak out. They're instantly destabilized because all of a sudden we don't know where we're going. And what is that quintessential little kid? I grew up in New Orleans before cars were nice. So, so many memories of vinyl, rear, vinyl, rear seat, vinyl seated station wagons when the, the air conditioning was more of a practical joke than a functioning unit. Driving around, what do kids ask when they're stuck in the car? Are we there yet? So that's the natural. We want to know where we're going. So it's actually not just about the journey. It's also about the, just the destination for us as people. And I think many of us at one time or another will wonder, where am I? Where are we going? What's the end game here? And that's on the mind of the psalmist here in Psalm 126, a psalm of ascent, a pilgrim psalm moving towards Jerusalem. I talked about that a little bit more in part one of this sermon many moons ago. But the question of where we're going is especially important when it gets sad. And there's references in the psalm to things like sorrow, tears, weeping. When things get sad, where are we going? Where is this going to end? What's the destination? It's natural for us to think that as human beings. And as far as Psalm 126, which in its original context was a song, was sung, the chorus or the refrain of this psalm is not, baby, we're born to run, although that's great. It's about restoration. At the beginning of the psalm, when the Lord restored our fortunes, we were like those who dream. Or the same idea in the second chorus, a little bit different, a current prayer. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. In the fine print, the tacit recognition within the prayer, restore our fortunes, O Lord, means we're not there yet. We have yet to be restored. We're in a hard place. We are where it gets sad for now. But from Psalm 126, let's think about where we're going, whether you're a committed Christian, whether you're still working out things of faith. Where is this all headed? Where are we headed? Especially when it gets sad. Is it just a song? Is it just a nice thought that we occasionally use to comfort ourselves, that we're going to get to that place where we really want to go? Or is it something more? How do we get there? So those are the two parts for the rest of the sermon. Where are we going? How do we get there? And for the where, where are we going part, I want to talk in an either or. Is it a feeling or is it a place? And then how do we get there? Is it a grind or is it a gift? If you remember back again from last sermon, so in totality, these two sermons I've given you four sets of alternatives. Last time we talked about, hey, when it gets sad, what do we do? Do we just try to forget and escape or refocus again, remember and look ahead? And then also, what are we relying on? Are we relying on God's faithfulness and his providence to move us forward? Or is it just fortune? Is it luck? Do we just in some amorphous way say, well, all things work out for a reason, I guess. Therefore, it's going to be fine. And then here, feeling versus place, grind versus gift. Where are we going? What's the end game? What's the goal? 
Well, I think for a lot of us here at Late Modern West, the goal might be to look inward and say, what I need, what I'm going for, is this inner sense of peace, of joy, of satisfaction. And that's what I'm all about. Once I can get that feeling inside, I'm going to be good forever. And isn't it the case that cottage industry after cottage industry after cottage industry have been formed and made, including some really big companies, about things like mindfulness, wellness, self-care. Now, this is where Christians need to be people of nuance and understand that there are a lot of good things in the world, a lot of bad things in the world, and usually it's a mixed bag. And we need to be discerning from a biblical perspective about what's good and what may not be. At one level, are things like mindfulness, wellness, and self-care good or bad? Of course they're good, and the church never wants to be against those things. But at another level, a couple of concerns from a biblical perspective. Namely, for starters, if all we're about, and this is whether you're a Christian or not, but if your functional marching orders for your own brain and own heart is only wellness, self-care, mindfulness, and there's nothing else, I'd want to ask the question, would you know if you'd ever crossed the line to simply indulging your own selfishness? Would you know? There's got to be a little bit more to the story than just that. Septibuses, do you know how there's the brake? You can pull the red cord. If all it is is this me, 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 mindfulness, wellness, and self-care, is there any cord that can be pulled to say, actually, this might be a little too much you right now? The Bible comes back and says both things. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Everybody's created in, in the image of God, north, south, east, west, no matter your background, no matter your abilities, no matter nothing. So there's beauty and goodness imbued in you through and through to the fiber of your being and the atoms and cells in your body but we're also broken in sin. There is no one good, no, not one. Both things are true, and we have to keep them both in mind, always, or you go off track one way or another. But if it's only, hey, I'm awesome, and I need to get to that place where I'm always feeling that all the time, we get off kilter from a biblical perspective. Because the Bible comes back and says, if you want to grow in grace, which is the true recipe for human flourishing, you need two things, peace plus push. You need both. Peace and push. And the gospel gives us both. If it's only push all the time, then it is. We're just grinding ourselves down. There's no joy. It's just cruelty. We're making bricks for Pharaoh all the time. But it's only ever peace. And no push. The reality is, sometimes I'm part of the problem and not part of the solution myself. And so there's always things that the gospel has for me not to stay where I am or even feel what I feel, but to grow and to change. Sometimes I quote Mark Sayers, Australian Christian speaker, etc. Put it this way. Many can miss out on the spiritual growth that occurs in times of challenge. When something is challenging or difficult, we often retreat. Our culture has created the idea of comfort zones, the idea that we can be successful while avoiding discomfort. However, this myth prevents us from growing and moving into renewal. 
two weeks ago, I was talking on the phone with the director of a Christian counseling center in a different part of the country than here. We were just comparing notes on some different things, and I asked her, hey, let me get your take on this. Is mindfulness, wellness, and self-care a double-edged sword at this point, where we've really grown in a lot of ways that are genuinely good, but it's a little bit out of control, and we're shielded from any sort of discomfort and gospel pushes. And this director of the counseling center, Christian Counseling Center, came back and said that is 100% right. And she said, we are ghosted at a higher rate than ever before in our Christian counseling, specifically when our counselors and our therapists try to introduce the concept of personal sin. She said, our counselors usually start with presenting pain points and issues and problems and struggles and suffering, and there's always a lot, and it's really good to hear all of those things. And these are for people that have grown up in the church and on a piece of paper would or should be very comfortable talking about sin. But she says, when our counselors begin to try to turn the corner and not obviate or ignore all the stuff about the pain and suffering, but say, hey, now let's talk about sin, yours. Are there any areas where there can be repentance and growth this way? Like never before, people are out. No, I can't talk about that right now. I won't talk about that. I thought you were on my side. The good news of the gospel is that God is always on our side, so much that he doesn't leave us in our own mess and junk, but wants us to grow. Here's another issue or another problem. If my only goal in life, where am I going? What's my destination? Well, it's going to be in this place where I finally feel totally comfortable, content myself. When I finally discovered my, who my true inner self is, and I'm going to stay there. Problem number two. If you're like me, the core of who you are, inner self, true self, deep affections, Here's an open secret. It changes all the time. So if my goal is I'm going to build my foundation and my destination on feeling a certain way, that is an impossible goal or endpoint. Because we're always shifting, and the Bible accounts for that. I mentioned to you before an Italian guy. Here's I might have to apologize about this at River Wards. I said, there's an Italian guy, Giacomo Leopardi, wrote in the early 1800s. I said, yeah, uh, all, all those old South Philly people, they, they, they all live in New Jersey right now anyway. There, there are no Philadelphians that live in Philly. And there was just quiet. And I thought to myself, I'll just keep going now. But this is what another Italian said. We often make the common mistake of believing, and... Leopardi, this is long before late modern period, but he's not a person of faith. He would combat sometimes romanticism, and romanticism, the movement in Europe, is in a lot of ways a precursor of where we are now. We often make the common mistake of believing that people start off with a plan of action and follow it through. When our nature, composed of a hundred passions, is always a mass of contradictions, with first one passion and then another gaining the upper hand. And people constantly change their ideas about which aim is better than another, where the aim remains the same, or the means of achieving it. See, the inner self is always moving. 
So the goal has got to be something bigger. We need an external anchor, and that's exactly what the good news of Jesus offers to us. So if you struggle, whether you're here as a Christian or somebody seeking or skeptical, and you find the inner sands and dynamics of your own heart constantly changing, the good news is that you can look outside and find an anchor. It's not a feeling internally, but it's a place externally, Zion. When the Lord restored Zion. And then also at the second half of this psalm, verses 5 and 6, all that language about sowing and reaping. Those aren't metaphors, primarily. That's literal reality of hands in the dirt and plows running through ground. It's a place. And the good news of the entire revelation of the gospel is that all of those promises about Zion in the Hebrew scriptures, where at that point, maybe the Israelites were looking forward to a renewed city of Jerusalem in particular, that was going to be the perfect place of God's future, his healing, all of his promises fulfilled. First and foremost, that place is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, and that place is coming back, not just in one town somewhere, but everywhere. The entire cosmos is being renewed in the new heavens and new earth. When Jesus comes back, that's what he's going to bring, and it's going to be as, a place as physical as the places where we're sitting and standing right now. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation talks about this last place. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. From the perspective of something like mindfulness and wellness, should we want to be whole people? Absolutely yes. And the scriptures come back and add, to truly be whole people, you need to be in a whole place. And that's what Jesus has prepared for us. There is a better place coming. So for you, when it gets sad, and maybe you're a little bit sad right now. Maybe you're a lot sad right now. Maybe you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, to use the language of another psalm. And things are really dark right now. Look ahead and look up. This may be a little flippant way to put it, but I think we should think about, or we could think about heaven as best vacation ever. In this way. It's going to be permanent, not just a vacation. Maybe some of you have actually taken best vacation ever before. Others of you may not have, but try to picture it. When there's some vacation ahead that you've been planning for for a long time, you've been looking forward to, this is going to be awesome. When that best vacation ever is ahead, and you have a really bad day at work, for example, it's not as bad. Or a really hard family situation is going. Or you messed something up really bad. Or something is messed up for you really bad. Even harder, maybe. It's not as bad. 
because you're going to see Mickey Mouse in a couple of weeks. And you're going to go to Epcot Center with all those miniature countries with furry people. It's going to be awesome. Best vacation ever that anchors you, as it should. That's the flippant part. But how much more should a new heaven and new earth anchor us? Will you take steps of faith in that direction, especially when it gets hard? How do we get there? And if for this sermon and part one, we've had three either or ors so far, this is a little bit of a cheat. This is a both and. Is it a grind or is it a gift? Kind of like the gospel of Jesus in general. Is it just a lot of work? Or is it free? And the answer is yes. One of the reasons that I remain a Christian over a lot of years and over a lot of personal experiences is that nowhere else in the world do I see this balance. Namely, that because Jesus is crucified and resurrected, the gospel demands everything of you. And Jesus paid it all. The gospel demands everything of you. And Jesus paid it all. It's in the songs that we sing where both are true. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And never forget, Jesus paid it all. Or it's even in that same song. Jesus paid it all. What's the next line? All to him I owe. Because we need to earn God's favor? We need to earn the place? No. But because Jesus paid it all, free, it's time for us to grind. All to him I owe. So, let's get grinding. Let's get to work. A metaphor like this about sowing comes into the New Testament, where the apostle says in one place, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The internal dynamic there is growing in the obedience of faith, where we are hearing gospel yeses and gospel noes and following them. Where we're not ghosting when the subject of our own sin comes up, but we're staying and trusting in the goodness and grace of God that for me to stay here and try to grow out of this and ask forgiveness, this is better for me than brand X, than the other way. Finding peace, among other things, through the push so that we can become more whole under Jesus. There is that internal dynamic. Don't settle, but sacrifice comfort for your family, for your friends, for your church community, for your community community. That is a worthy battle. That is a good grind. But here's the problem with work. It's work, and it pushes us in directions that we don't want to be pushed in. Hmm, there's a community event on Tuesday. But Suits just released on Netflix. I'll take door number two. Or there's a thought pattern or a behavior pattern, something internal. There's a political opinion being changed. If there's a bias being corrected, racially, ethnically, whatever it is, 
We're like, oh, I guess I need to do this sexually, whatever it is. Okay, I need to be here and trust that the goodness and grace and presence of God is here. And when we do that, we are living, speaking, and serving as Jesus' very presence better. Don't resent the grind. Embrace it. And Liberty Pastors, we just took throughout our communion, we're actually at my dad's place in western Pennsylvania. It's uh, cheaper to, to go there <laughs> and than, than, than a retreat center. Surrounded by western Pennsylvania farm country. And we can idealize farmers sometime. I don't know if any of my farming relatives, some of them might actually be watching right now. Love you all. Not talking about you. Talking about the other farmers. <laughs> they are some of the most anxious, grumpiest people I've ever met. Because farming is so hard. Chances are, and I don't want to over-stereotype, farming is harder than your job. Whatever it is. Or at least it's harder than mine. And it's so much labor, and for so long, so little return. I make the joke before that in the Anger household, it's a plant graveyard. We love people. Plants are challenging. They tend to die on our watch. I'll take a Chia Pet. That's nice. They grow fast. But like real plants are hard. And it takes a ton of work for a little yield for a long period of time. But so and so and so. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City. By the way, we have a free book if you want to grab it or order it. The prodigal God who died in the late spring. He would say on multiple occasions, and I haven't gone back to check, although I trust that it's true, comparing and contrasting the last words of the Buddha with the last words of Jesus. And I don't say this specifically to throw Buddha personally under the bus, but just to con contrast the worldviews. Apparently, Buddha's last words were strive unceasingly. Contrast that with one of the last words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. So even as we grind, how much is enough? And the good news is that it's never enough. But there's more to the message of Jesus than strive unceasingly. It's, it is finished. Because following Jesus, to get, among other things, to the place where we really want to go, it's a gift. I want to read, and this is where the plane is starting to circle for the landing here. The last half of the psalm, once again, there is a stunning, startling contrast in these last three verses, verses four to six, that modern people miss. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bearing his sheaves with him. Now to us as modern readers, it just sounds like Bible, 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 Bible. But in the ancient context, the audience would have said, these are very different things. The Negev is one, and then sowing is the other. Negev, one of the most arid, dry, desert-like regions in all of the ancient Near East. Everybody knows that in the ancient context. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Not very often, but occasionally. There would be a flash flood, specifically in the Negev Valley, where overnight, all of this sudden rain would cause the Negev, the driest place that you can imagine, to explode in green overnight. 
where it was a desert yesterday, the rains came, and now it's a beautiful garden with verdant greens and blossoms and every color of flower all at once. And any farmer would realize when that happens to the Negev, we did not sow there. We did not grind there. We did not plan for this. We did not check our almanac for this. It just happened because God just did it unilaterally. We didn't deserve it. But look at this green. Look at this flourishing. Look at this life. Because God sent water and gave growth. A flourishing Negev is a gift. As is grace and eternal life in Jesus. Lord, send water. Well, Jesus himself has said, John's gospel, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. If you're dry, if you're ground down, if you feel like a desert and hope and life are extinguished, by faith, come to Jesus and plead with him for living water. A Christian grid for understanding, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. That's a prayer to Jesus. Jesus, you are the fountain of living water. Fill me again. Revive me again, like the valley of the Negev. See if Jesus won't do that. But understand that it's a gift. Ironically, another last word of Jesus on the cross, the same one that said, I am water, on the cross said, I thirst. Because Jesus became the Negev for us. Jesus went into that bone-dry desert place taking on himself the wrath of God for your sin and my sin, that the road that Jesus gives to us by grace goes up and not down. And it's blood-bought, graciously bought through and through at great cost. Flannery O'Connor, 20th century writer, observed that we forget cost when it comes to life. The reader of today is indeed looking for redemption, and rightly so, but what he has forgotten is the cost of it. His sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether, and so he has forgotten the price of restoration. Friends, do not forget the price of restoration. But by that restoration, through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by grace and grace alone, we'll get to that place where we really want to go because of the Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.